All right, all right. Good morning, family. Awesome. I'm always so, good morning, Tom. I'm always so grateful to be uh, opening up God's Word with you. If you have this uh, thing right here, go ahead and pull that out. Um, if you don't, uh, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're too lazy to even do that, which is okay, uh, we still love you here. Um, we're going to have it up on the screen. Um, but we're continuing our series called Why Church. Dave, Dave made a great point. Is it Why Church or is it Why Church? I, it, it, could be, it could be both. I don't know. Um, but this, this teaching series has been extremely um, timely and challenging for me personally. Anybody else? Has it been like, ooh, I needed to hear that. Like, I need to be reminded about this whole thing that Jesus invited us into called the church. Um, it, it, it's a very interesting season in, in the church or the church family. Um, and I think that a conversation around the biblical model of church is probably one of the most important things that we could be talking about um, right now as it relates to um, the culture that we live in. So today I'll I want to let you know that I'll be quoting um, a lot of people and also be reading a lot of scripture, um, tons of scripture. And, and a couple things that I want you to know. First is that it's really great to take notes. We have a saying that goes like, what? Yes, note takers are world changers. But um, I'm going to kind of break my rule here. Please do not try to um, write all of these quotes down. Uh, I know there's there's sometimes frustration, there's a long quote, and you're like, ooh, that's good, and then you're so fast, there's like 10 more things were said, and you just miss it. Um, please don't try to write all this down. I printed off slides that will be available on your way out, um, just for those big, lengthy ones. Um, so don't, don't try to do that. Still take notes, but you don't have to do all the beefy ones, okay? And secondly, um, although I'm quoting a lot of leading voices in the area of, of church community, I want to clarify that true change, true cha- cha- transformation doesn't happen through um, pastoral or professional opinions, okay? Like, I believe that true change is birthed out of the Word of God and the inner working of the Holy Spirit, okay? So, so my prayer is that the Word of God would be held with, like, extremely high esteem and that the people that I reference today, they would only point you to the Word of God. It's not like, oh, here's what the Word of God says, but look at, listen to all these scholars in the air. No, 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 no. This is the Word of God. And scholars, time and time and time again, are proving, some of the best thinkers in the world are proving this to be true. May anything I share today only draw us nearer to the scriptures and nearer to God. Amen? So I want to start by praying briefly, um, because I need as much of that as I can get. And then we're going to read some of Paul's words that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. So um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, we stand before you with with your word open, and we are eager. Our minds are open. We ask you to speak. We ask that we would have ears to hear and and eyes to see. Give us vision for our church family and give us boldness to live into that vision. May your words transform us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So this is Paul's um, words to a church in Ephesus. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. It goes like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, putting up with one another. (laughs) Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, there's one faith, 
There's one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, the church, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is a beautiful, beautiful image of Christian maturity and unity within the church body. And, and the thing that I want to focus on today is, is the togetherness of this community that Paul is speaking of. It, it's really hard to be a whole body joined and held together with every supporting ligament when we have so many amputated parts or body parts taking a break from participation. It's, it's a very difficult task to be a unified body of people growing together, being held together when we are isolated and distant from those we are called to do life with. Wouldn't you agree? Mother Teresa has this famous, famous line that goes like this, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. And I think that wasn't modern as in like recently. <laughs> Like even back in the day, loneliness has been the leprosy of the modern world. And over the last 15 years, in parallel with the rise of social media, the number of people experiencing loneliness has skyrocketed. And almost all of those statistics are pre-pandemic. Meaning, right now, loneliness is off the charts, and the church community is not exempt from those statistics. Uh, we need to be careful, though. Because loneliness might be really, really easy to miss because we are more connected than ever before. Anybody got, got one of these guys right here? Social media platforms, email, texting, FaceTime, we are so connected, but we need to be clear of this truth right here. Connectivity is not the same as community. Connectivity is not the same as community. Um, uh, Sherry Turkle is this brilliant lady who's leading the way with research and studies about the digital age and what it, how it's affecting our um, generation and the, the current human condition. And she's been writing about this for decades now, which is really awesome. And her most recent book, even the title is really haunting. It's called Alone Together. And, and uh, listen to what she has to say about this. We are lonely, but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. A networked life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to one another. Have you felt that before? It's like they don't know me, I don't know them, but I know everything about them because I follow them. 
You ever see somebody in public that you follow on social media? Maybe you younger people and you're like, I follow them. They've never met me, but I know everything about their lives. You have no commitment to friendship, but you're tethered to them. We would, we would rather talk than text. And here's the problem right here. When, oh. Yeah, he know, yeah, you know what's up. We'd rather text than talk. Thank you, everybody. That was generous of you to not say wrong. You just laughed. Here, here's the problem right here. Um, when, when technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. You go, I'm connected with them, so I must be in relationship with them. And, and then easily connections can be defined as intimacies. Like I know them really, really well because I'm connected with them. I must be in an intimate friendship with them. But uh, put otherwise, some cyber intimacies slide into becoming cyber solitudes. So our culture at large has been deceived into believing that connection or knowing what other people are doing is the essence of community, and it's just not cutting it for us. Like, in fact, those connections only give us the illusion of community, and it leaves us feeling even more isolated than ever before, right? That's where the term, like, FOMO comes from, fear of missing out. Like, you're not even connected with them, and you wish you were with them doing what they're doing. We are more connected than ever before, but we are also more isolated than ever before. So, so lonely is at this deep ache at the heart of the culture that we live in. And at the same time, church community is more blurry and vague than ever before. So let's have a look at the community that Jesus had around him. It's always a good idea. How did Jesus deal with community stuff? Uh, Matthew 10, verse 1 through 4 says this. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, the church at this time people that were following Jesus, and and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. It's for another sermon for another time. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, there's Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So, by this time, Jesus had a whole lot of people following him, and, and there was this sort of inner circle of disciples that, that he spent a lot of time with, and notice that there's only two people in here with, with descriptors. Descriptors. It, it, it kind of, it, Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot, um, uh, he, Matthew worked for Rome. He worked for the government, worked for Rome. Simon was a zealot, which was a, a violent sect of the first century Jews who often used guerrilla tactics to fight people like Matthew. You might miss that at first, right? That's, that's pretty interesting. So um, zealots were commonly associated with dagger men, right? Ooh. So th- what they would do is they would sneak up to Roman officials. So people like Simon would sp- sneak up to people like Matthew in a crowd and slit their throats with a dagger and then slip back into the crowd like nothing happened. And now we have murder mystery parties because of this, Right. And so imagine Matthew and Simon in the same little Bible study group together, right? Just, just imagine for a second, not to get too political, but I'm just going to go out there for a second. Imagine a guy walks up, make America great again hat, right? Rural area, gun in the back window of his pickup truck with mud and maybe even an American flag flowing back there. Eastern Oregon stereotype, right? <laughs> Wrong. No, <laughs> right, wrong. No. It's funny, Luke, Luke and I are both from Eastern Oregon, but I'd be like, you know, like Luke, but it's like, dude, how did he come from Eastern Oregon? Or myself, I don't know. But 
walking up to a house. So this is the guy walking up to a house to join a Bible study with some extreme progressive leftist elite. Would there be tension in that room? Would the, yes. Do, do you think there was tension present in Jesus's group of disciples? Do, do you think politics ever would have come up? Like, do, do you think opinions or worldviews would come through in their discussion and would it have gone well? I don't. I can't imagine so. I imagine there was times when it didn't go well. So Jesus puts together this community from across the spectrum, and it's not just like the socio-political thing. Like you also have differences in personalities. Like Peter is this really loud and intense dude, right? Super intense. And then you have Thomas, this like kind of quiet, emotional blogger kind of guy, right? And and then you have, and Dave mentioned this the other day, but James and John, who are referred to as the sons of thunder, which sounds really cool, but it basically meant they weren't taking notes on the Sermon on the Mount. And and then, then you have next to him, like, Judas, like, cold, analytical betrayer type, right? All this to say, this is a, a, a very diverse group of people, and I doubt that it was easy getting along with one another. And if you've ever, ever read the Gospels, you know this to be true. Um, there's this moment in the book of, of Matthew, in Matthew 20, I think, like, verse 20, um, when, when the mom of the sons of thunder, James and John, you know where this is going, he comes to Jesus and basically asks if her boys— Hey, Jesus, listen, my boys, James and John, you know, like they're, they're pretty awesome. And it's kind of like the referee or like the coach slipping the ref, like 50 bucks or something, like make it happen. You know, um, it's kind of what's happening. And the funny, like be, I want James and John to be on your right and left. Can you make this happen? Are we good? And, and, um, the funny part about it is that the other 10 disciples heard about it. So this is bad. And the scriptures say that the disciples were indignant. They were furious. They were ticked off. And then Jesus goes on to teach about how God's kingdom is backwards from the world. Like the whole first or last and the last or first thing is when he starts talking about that. And all of that to say is church life is difficult and it was from the start. If you are having difficulty in, in church, your church experience, welcome to the club. Welcome to the family. And here's the picture that I want you to capture is this. There is the ideal of community. There is the messy reality of community. And discipleship to Jesus happens in the space in between. Um, I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it um, in his book called Life Together. He says it like this. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. So the biggest threat to real church Christian community is the ideal of community. Like if you want to ruin your community super fast, step into a community with idealistic expectations, right? Like step into it wanting everyone to be just like how you want them to be and you will destroy community. Um, Another quote here, listen to what Jean Vignet, I think is how you say his name. He's the founder of Arc Communities. It's a community in Switzerland that spread throughout the world caring for those with mental disabilities. He says it like this, Almost everyone finds their early days in community ideal. Like, it all seems perfect. Have you ever been here before? You enter a group, you're like, oh, they're awesome. They, they feel they are surrounded by saints and heroes or at the least the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. Like, if, if, if people manage to get to the second period, um, they get to the third phase, that of realization and true commitment. They no longer see other members as saints or as devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. 
Their community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Oh, that's so good. So if we're asking the question, why church? I want to start like this as the good introduction. <laughs> You're like, what? I thought it was about done. Why church? It's, it's the context in which we follow Jesus. There is no other place to follow Jesus. There is no such thing as a solo disciple. The church community is non-optional to the Christian life. Jesus never had a disciple. He always had disciples. And you always hear about him with a few others or with James and John or with the 12 or the 70 or the hundreds or the thousands. Of course, Jesus went off to be alone. That's for another sermon for another time. But he didn't live in that place. It wasn't like Jesus went off to pray and they didn't see him again. (laughs) Like, we cannot follow Jesus alone. We cannot do it. You cannot separate your following of Jesus from your involvement in a Jesus community because the two go together. And this is hard for us to swallow because we're super individualistic in our Western society, very independent. Um, Barna Research Organization, uh, it, they, they study the, the intersection between our cultural moment and the church. They did this study and they asked tons of Christians this, this question here. What is your preferred way of following Jesus with a mentor in community or on your own? You know where this is going, right? The largest number of Christians selected this third one here, on your own. Like, I want to follow, that, like, that's us. That's our temptation, just me and Jesus, a podcast, no accountability, no, no messy community, no weird smells, no one that no one that grinds my gears, and I'm good to go. But it doesn't work that way, right? That's not, that's not how it goes. I recently got some old CDs from my, my grandfather um, who loved bluegrass. And Allison and I were jamming out, which is just hilarious. Any bluegrass fans in the house? Okay. Yeah. And uh, this song came on that was so good, but I was gearing up for this, and it was, I was cracking up. But the lyrics, um, I completely agree with with. Rhonda Vincent in this, in this uh, song, but it's so far off base. I had to share it with you. It goes like this. My granddaddy never went to church. He felt closer to God with his hands in the dirt, doing hard work with, with sun on his face, sweat on his brow, and, and the wind in his hair, and he'd say a prayer anywhere. He'd be standing in the middle of a fresh mown field. The spirit would move him, and he'd just kneel and start giving thanks for God's green earth. And when he came to church, he'd prefer something else. He'd prefer his blue sky cathedral with his white pine steeple, sunrise for its stained glass windows, singing along with that songbird hymnal, made his soul fly like an eagle under that blue sky (laughs) cathedral. Beautiful song, right? I love it. But one thing that the dirt and and the birds and and the grass and the sky could never do is disagree with you, right? It never talks back. It never challenges you. It doesn't require anything in return. You don't have to bear with it in love like the scriptures say or or encourage. You don't never have to encourage it. Like, come on, son, you got, like most of the time I would love if my church was the blue sky cathedral, to be honest. Like no offense. It's just that a beautiful scenery is so much better than dealing with broken people, especially when I bring in my brokenness into the situation. You see what I'm saying there? So uh, Ronald Rollheiser, he, he explains this beautifully. He says it like this. Part of the essence of Christianity 
is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there, the tensions it will bring us. Spirituality for Christians can never be an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community, family, and and the church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with the visible neighbor on earth is a liar. So I step on some toes here. Since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. I hate that quote. But isn't it so true? Like Christian spirituality is always as much as dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. So why church? Because it's the context in which we follow Jesus. It's non-optional. I wish I had a, something else to tell you, but that's just what, I, what we see in the scriptures. And um, there's this book called The Relational Soul. And listen to what it has to say. It says, at the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be in relationship. Double negative there. We cannot exist well without connection and communion uh, communion with another. So nothing has proven this more than the effects we are seeing from isolation in and around our culture in the last couple of years, right? I'm not just saying this because I'm an extrovert. You might be like, yeah, easy for you to say, Nick. No, no matter your personality, you are a relational soul. It's like, what was the very first thing deems not good? Being alone, right? Genesis 2, it was not good for man to be alone. So you're like, no, but for me, I'm different. Like, I'm super introverted. No, you're born with a relational pull. Um, And if we're continuing to ask the question, why church? This is the second thing I want you to write down. It's the context where transformation takes place. Community is the primary environment where change happens. Like, on a surface level, we become like the people that we hang out with. Students in the front row, that's why mom's always saying, who are you hanging out with? (laughs) Right? But at a deeper level... Christian community does two things to transform us into Christ-likeness. Number one, exposure, and number two, encouragement. Christian community exposes us, and it encourages us. It exposes what's really inside of us, and it draws out the best in us. So let's start with uh, this one first. Community exposes what's really inside of you. So just like the story we read about James and John and their mom, all of that never would have come out if they weren't in community with the 12 or with the 10, right? Like the anger problem that Peter had never would have come out if he would have stayed in the boat with dad and continued fishing. Like community exposes what's actually inside of us. You might be like, that's terrible. (laughs) Keep it in, right? But that's really, really, really good news. And it's really, really difficult. Pete Scazzaro, who wrote The Emotionally Healthy Church and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and all these great books, he defined the shadow side that each one of us have, a shadow side. And here's how he defined the shadow side. Your shadow side is the accumulation of untamed emotions. Anybody got those? You're less than, nobody who was quick to raise their hand, less than pure motives and thoughts that while largely unconscious, like you don't even know this is happening, they strongly influence and shape your behavior. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. And, and we all have a shadow side. And the hard thing about a shadow side is that it's hidden from you, but everybody else sees it loud and clear, right? Especially those who are closest to you. And 
and you need someone else to see your shadow side and then love you enough to be honest about what they see. Oh man, yeah, and, and we will, we, we're gonna be blinded to this side of ourselves until we step into community that loves us enough first to get to know us and then to be honest with us in a, in a God-honoring way. And then secondly, a healthy Jesus community consists of encouragement. So at a psychological and neurological level, the only way to get healing from a relational wound is in relationship. Isn't that interesting how we've been created? Like, in other words, our deepest wounds and our greatest healings come from relationship. And that, that is why it's so tragic when people get hurt in relationships and then they refuse to develop other relationships out of fear of getting hurt. The only way to heal is to step, and the only way to get encouragement is to step into a healthy Jesus kind of relationship. You fix your broken part in relationship. You fix your broken part in relationship. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says it this way. And let us consider how we may spur one another on. I love that, that, that uh, vocabulary there. Spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And, and all the more as you see it, uh, the, day, the, the day approaching. So the, the, the word encourage here literally means to infuse with courage, to infuse you with courage. We have a commitment to infuse one another, to be courageous in the things of the Lord. Does anybody need to be courageous in the things of the Lord? You need to be infused this morning. That's what the church community is for. I I remember very clearly when I was in high school, my youth pastor was so good at both of these. He he mastered in the one of exposure though. (laughs) But I remember so clearly sitting in his living room, I thought I was so rebellious, like by this fire, all these high schoolers at like 6 a.m. and we'd be like praying and then it'd be like, well, what's going on at school? And I'd be like, oh, there's this teacher, the worst, the worst. I love teachers, by the way. So not, not a diss on you, but it's like this teacher's so bad. And, and for these reasons, and I had frustration and he would listen and then he would honestly and gently go, um, I'm gonna have to call you out there. And he would challenge my perspective of her. And, and, and then he would remind me of who I am as a Christ follower. And he, and he would infuse me with courage to love her in ways that other people just didn't choose to love her, right? And, and um, in ways that I didn't think that she deserved. And he infused me with courage to be what God was calling me to be. And, and I just conclude we are simply better together. I was able to love her in ways I didn't have the capacity to. And the, the church community infused me with courage to lean into the things of the Lord. Um, it's also important to note, I think we, it's, especially where we're at culturally, we need to, to become, uh, we need to grow in our commitment. So church community is the byproduct of commitment, real church community. It takes time and intentionality. So on one hand, we ache for community. It's like, oh, we, we want this. But on the other hand, we really want to keep our options open. Anybody met someone like that or anybody like that where you're like, I don't know, what if something better comes along? Like there's a cooler, trendier, more fun church or people that look more like me or act more like me. Um, um, and what's in it for me anyways? Like, like how will this person make me feel or how will this group make me look or what is it going to require of me? It's like you're really hard to deal with. I don't know if I want to put that forward. Um, we live in a world of options, so we hold out wondering what if there is something or someone better out there? What if there's a cooler church, cooler community? And because of that, we are tempted to hesitate in our commitment, and we keep things at an arm's length. You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, so that, 
The reality is we cannot experience true community without commitment. If we want community, if we want in-depth, open, long-term relationships, we have to commit to a group of people, a group of people that are less than ideal. Sorry, a group of people who are messy and imperfect and who are different than you, people who have real problems and real issues, maybe even people that you find extremely annoying, right? And we have to say, I'm in it with you because we are better together. Our culture is more, this is why this is so important. Our culture is far more concerned with compatibility than they are commitment. Our culture is so much more concerned about compatibility than they are commitment. And I think this has made its way into the church. Like if you're like me, um, if you aren't like me, I I don't know about this. If we aren't compatible, then we just can't do this life together. And I just don't find that mentality in scripture. Like what if the power was in the commitment and not in compatibility? One thing I've found is that no one is truly compatible, right? It's, it's only a matter of time before that person lets you down in some way. There is strength in committing to one another for the glory of God. So, uh, Saint Benedict has this famous line that I think to, I think it needs to resurface for our generation. He, he, he's, he came up with this uh, word called stability, and here's how he defined it. The spiritual skill of staying put to get somewhere. St. Benedict, the spiritual skill of staying put to get somewhere. This is so countercultural. The church doesn't have a uh, cancel culture. We have a commitment culture. Write that down. We don't have a cancel culture like the rest of the culture. We have a commitment culture here at Cedar Mill Bible Church. Um, In the book Slow Church, they say it like this. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. And here's the good part. People who stay grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. Live rooted. Commit for the long haul. And I'm preaching to myself because the long haul is really, really grueling at times. It takes time to get to know people. It takes intentionality. Um, how, how do we live this out? You're like, okay, I, I, you, you've convinced me, Nick. How do we live this out? I can tell you this. We don't live this out around a stage once a week. But that's a part of it. <laughs> we don't live it out once a week around a stage, but that's a part of it. But what we do is we live this out around a table, over a meal, over coffee, in homes, sharing life, life on life, exchanging texts throughout the week. We meet each other's needs when one of us has fallen. We pray for successful job interviews. We grieve with each other when, when life just happens. Um, we're, we're with each other through the lows and the highs, and we celebrate with each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, we have a large gathering every Sunday, which is so important, but what we desire um, births out of this is a family that flourishes in their relational lives the other six days of the week. This gathering and scattering are important to the church. Um, Let's continue answering why church. It proclaims Jesus to the world. You're like, wait, what? Look at this. John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You get the point. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus has called us to to love the world. He's called us to love our enemies. He's called us to love people who are far from him. 
Um, But this verse is particularly referring to the church loving the church. It's saying people will know who Jesus is, people will know who I am when the church chooses to radically and sacrificially love one another. Because when people come into contact with a love that is undeniable that there's something other than self-human power driving it, you know, they, they start asking questions. They're like, what is it? What's about your community, right? In a world that is divided and, and hateful and selfish, the church community is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Like it is to be a vessel of light in, in a dark world. Like if a non-Christian, and I pray to God that there are people who don't follow Jesus in this place, you're welcome here. We love you. We want you here. We want to do life with you. If a non-Christian witnessed this church community, what would they see? Would they see division, gossip, a lack of commitment, or would they go, wow, what is, what is so different about this? There's like commitment that I don't see out in the world. There's love that I don't see anywhere um, out there. Like there's sacrifice, there's honor, there's unity, there's humility. They, they value others above their, their, their own selves. And does your community look distinctively different than communities outside of this world? We're not a social club. Uh, I want to show you a short clip from the, the legendary Francis Chan to give you some perspective. I, I thought I'd share these words. There was this guy um, that came to my church once, and, and he was a part of a gang and, uh, and decided to ditch everything and, and follow Jesus, and he got baptized. And after a while, though, he stopped coming to church gatherings and and one of my buddies asked him they go hey wh- where you been he, he says when I got baptized he goes I thought that it was gonna be like when I got jumped into the gang He goes, when I got jumped into my gang he goes suddenly everyone had my back we became like a family 24 7 he says so when I got baptized I thought this is what's gonna happen with the Christians he goes I, I didn't know that it was just Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, he goes, I thought it was going to be family. So he goes, I, I just had it wrong in my head. And yet when I heard that, I thought, no, you got it right. We've got it wrong. And, and honestly, it was heartbreaking because I thought, the gangs are a better picture of family than the churches? The gangs are a better picture of the body than, than we are? They're having a fellowship and a sharing that we don't see in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet that's the very thing that Jesus wanted for us. I'm dreaming of a church that's distinctively different. You guys capture that. Distinctively different where we go, wow, there's, there's a commitment there. There's radical commitment to one another. And I'll conclude with this point. Why, why church? Because we need you. We need you online. Do you, hear, do you hear me? I'm talking about you too. We need you. The church body is made up of many parts. And when you aren't a part of our body, we are missing vital parts. The, the big toe doesn't seem all that important until you mess it up. Then you're like, whoa, I can barely balance because this big toe is shredded. And, and uh, it, it's important for, for, for balance. The fingernail doesn't seem all that, all that big of a deal until you rip that puppy off, right? It's a very important role. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about it. It's really humorous, actually, but it's an honest explanation of the body of Christ and how it's like many parts of a physical body. 
He like illustrates this about like the eyeball talking to different parts of the body. It's really funny. But he explains how we all need each other. Like the body needs all these other parts. And uh, listen to how he concludes that section. 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And I want you to hear this part. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Do you view yourself as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of the bride of Christ? The church is not a few people doing some public things for their faith. It's hundreds of people doing private and relational things to build the kingdom of God day in and day out. Do you hear me there? Like if, if, you're, gonna, if you're going to do the work of ministry, you need the support of the church and we need you. You need us, we need you. So, so what about online? There's people online right now um, because they have to be. And, and what, what do we do as a church? We support that. We, ha- we have shut-ins due to age. We have people who cannot gather for health reasons. And we have a gift called the online platform. And I just want to say that this, this whole teaching series isn't to shame anyone um, if you're not able to be here today. We, we love you if you're online. We honor you. We're here with you and for you. You are a vital part of our church community. Um, but I do have a word for those who are capable of being here and have shifted their relationship with church just a little bit the last couple of years. An online teaching is more of a supplement than the substance. An online teaching is like, a, is like a supplement. Do you see what I'm saying? Like hearing a teaching online is great, but that is not church. Like it, if you have grown too comfortable waking up, staying in your PJs, drinking coffee while you're petting your cat, I'm sorry if that's exactly what you're doing. In, in, they're like, put the cat by, like to the side. Like it, if you're doing that in place of being face-to-face with real community, I want to challenge you to consider a new rhythm. Like, we miss you, and you miss out when you are absent from the body. We desire and, and, and long to be with you in person. And I want to conclude. You're like, I'm pretty sure you said conclude like six times. I think I did. It just keeps going. I don't know. I want to conclude with a story that I heard recently um, about this guy, D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, he's an evangelist, a teacher, and a pioneer to urban ministries all throughout large cities um, in our nation. And, and one night he was having a dialogue with, around a fire with a gentleman, and this dialogue turned into kind of a debate, kind of a heated debate. Um, they were fighting. No, it was a debate. And, and uh, the debate was about the church and whether or not the church is necessary in following Jesus. Like, can you follow Jesus alone or does it have to be in a church community? And Moody was making the argument that there is no other place to follow Jesus. Like it must be done in your private life, of course, but in community, in the context of a church. That's how Jesus set it into motion. And halfway through this conversation, D.L. Moody, out of frustration, he grabs a stick and he sticks it in the fire and he rolls like flings a big old log to the side. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk anymore. They just sat there and they watched this log go from a red hot flame to red coals to just a bunch of smoke to just a, a black log. You could barely see it in the, in the darkness. And then they go back to staring at this fire. It was to illustrate that in order to be a church on fire, we need each other. In order to be a church on fire, we need each other. A signpost to heaven, a signpost to heaven is a church on fire. 
not a bunch of individuals that have dwindled. You see what I'm saying? Are you catching my drift here? Like hope in the midst of hopelessness is a church that is unified and a church that is on fire and a church that is being infused with courage to enter this world. Why church? Because we are better together. And that's how Jesus made it to be. So may Cedar Mill Bible Church commit to being a church on fire for the world to see. And and as people draw near out of curiosity, may they find that Christ is what makes us burn. (laughs) May they go, wow, what a bunch of charismatic people. No, 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 don't get me wrong. Christ is why we burn. We join because Christ has invited us into it and we stand and say, we're gonna pursue you together. May the love we have for one another proclaim Christ to this world. If you would, would you stand with me and we're gonna respond in worship as we become a church on fire. God, I just wanna thank you for, for this church family, for the people that are in this room. And, and we're grateful that you set into motion the church, that you've given us a vision for what it means to live as the church. And you say each one of us is a vital part of the church. And, and uh, God, I just, we, we all in unity as a body are standing here and we say, we want to be a unified church on fire for the city to find hope. I pray that this church community would actually be a beacon that, that people come by, a vessel where people, people walk by and they go, I don't know what it is about that church, but I want what they have. And we get to say, you know what we have? We have each other, but that's not even the best part. We have Jesus who has given his life for us and we get to respond um, by giving our lives to him in return. And, we, and our lives for eternity starts now and it lasts forever. We have hope in the midst of hopelessness. We have springs of living water in a parched land. So God, we give you our attention, we give you our affection, and we join forces as the church. Let us burn. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.